there are only two responses to Jesus. You either accept Him or you reject Him. That's what we're going to see here in Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 54. So let me invite you to turn in your Bibles there, Luke chapter 11. Now, you might say, well, there's actually a third response, and that is to wait and see. Someone could say, well, they're not really fully rejecting them, and they're not accepting them. They're kind of waiting to see. But I hope you recognize that delay is actually a form of rejection. And so there is no middle ground with Jesus. He comes with a polarizing message, a message that, that calls us to die to self in order that we may live eternally or else live to self and die eternally. There's no halfway house for any individual. The message of Jesus brings person to one response or the other, acceptance or rejection. And once that message is heard, it must be considered and responded to with great sobriety. And because Jesus' message is so polarizing, we should not be surprised that it brings about with it much opposition. And so Jesus has been healing. He's been doing a lot of things that people enjoy and enjoy watching, enjoy being around Him, hearing some things that He has to say that sometimes go against the grain a little bit. And now we come to a point where the opposition is not so much reserved and kind of the stand back and, and look sort of mentality. Now it's the pounce and attack opposition that comes on a person and that comes on Jesus Himself. So let me begin reading in chapter 11, verse 14. And I'll read through verse 26 just to give us an idea of where we're at for this passage that we're going to look at this evening. This is the Word of God. And He, Jesus, was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Others to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul, and if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? though they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it is swept and put in order. And then it goes and takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse 
than the first. We must make a choice to follow Jesus and then follow Him wholeheartedly. We must make a choice to follow Jesus and then do so wholeheartedly. In verses 14 through 23, Jesus performs a miracle in order to reveal the hearts of his opponents. The miracle is stated for us briefly in verse 14 that he cast out a demon who had made the man mute. Generally speaking, the purpose of miracles is to reveal the nature of Jesus. That is, the primary purpose of miracles is to show who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. That's why you often see the responses to His miracles of who else can do this? Who can cause the wind and the waves to obey Him? Who can raise the dead? Who can make the blind to see? And and the implied answer is only the one who is promised from the Old Testament. Now, I say that's the the primary purpose of these miracles, but that's not the only purpose. Now, certainly there are other lesser purposes like to provide for the person who is hurting, the person who is blind, the person who had been dead. But what you'll find, generally speaking, in miracles is that very little time is given to the response to the miracles. Most often, when one of the Gospel writers records a miracle, they talk about the nature of the miracle, the nature of Jesus, what He says about the miracle, and then you have this little short part at the end about the response. And that's because I think the primary purpose of miracles is to express the nature of Jesus. But here, Luke does does something a little bit different by recording this story. He records a miracle that talks very little about the miracle itself and about the nature of Jesus and, and instead spends a lot of time on the response of the people. And he does this because I think we're at a, at a, at a turning point, really, in Luke's Gospel where now it's time to decide. Jesus has been saying, you need to make a choice. Either follow Me or or suffer your fate, your eternal fate. And now it's time to make a choice. And so He makes he does this miracle in a very clear way in front of the Pharisees and we receive, or we have two responses by the crowd in verses 15 to 23. Two responses. First, is the wait-and-see approach. Verse 16, the wait-and-see approach. Others, to test Him, were demanding of Him a sign from heaven. The wait-and-see approach is the one that clearly sees what Jesus does but doesn't respond with full obedience. It's the delayed approach. I'll think about it a little bit. And we'll come back to that response because in verses 29-36, through we have an expansion of that idea when Jesus goes on to talk about how you have all these signs. It's time for you to respond. It's time to respond for you to respond like Nineveh responded, like the Queen of Sheba responded, and so on. And so the wait and see approach, we'll come back to that one. But the second response of the crowd to the miracle of Jesus in this case is blasphemous rejection. Verse 15. But some of them said, He cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So here's their claim that Jesus' power is demonic. The name Beelzebul repeated several times in this passage. Verse 18, um, at the end of the verse, you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Verse 19, if I by Beelzebul cast out demons. Okay, they call him Beelzebul. It's just another way to say Satan. 
And the reason we know that is because, verse 15, He is the ruler of the demons. He's the ruler of the demons. Notice how Jesus, by the way, uses the, word, the name Beelzebul interchangeably with the name Satan or the devil. Notice verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? But you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. They could say, well, wait a second, we weren't even talking about Satan. But they don't say that because Satan and Beelzebul are the same person. Just another way to describe him. But Jesus reasons with them by giving three responses in verses 17 to 23. So they make a blasphemous claim against Jesus and His authority, the source of His authority. Where does His authority come from? They say Satan. And Jesus gives three responses to their blasphemous claim. It amazes me that Jesus doesn't get defensive or even offensive. Instead, He reasons with them. He doesn't say, well, wait a second, did, did you really think about that? Instead, He reasons with them like, you're a rational creature, you can think about this, so let me show you, let me give you a proof that, that shows that I am not working on behalf of Satan. The first reason is found in verses 17 and 18. And it is that a divided kingdom falls. A divided kingdom falls. Satan would never send someone to undo his own work. Satan's work is one of destruction. Why would he send someone to stop that destruction? Right? That's what the demons are doing, right? They're always tormenting people. They're throwing the, the person to the ground, causing death, right? Remember when the, all the demons are sent into the swine? What happens to all the, the pigs, right? They, they die. That's, they're just destructive creatures. Why would Satan stop that destructive power that he's trying to, to display? That's his first argument. Jesus says, a divided kingdom falls. Verse 17. He says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? It doesn't make sense. If he is giving me the authority to cast out demons, he's actually stopping his own work. Now, it's amazing, too, that, that they weren't saying these things directly to Jesus. Notice verse 15. But some of them said, and then they claim that he's working on behalf of Satan. And notice what Jesus, what, what Luke records about Jesus. But he knew their thoughts. So they were either saying this among themselves or saying in their own heads, Jesus, not directly to Jesus. And Jesus says, Why do you say that I am working on behalf of Beelzebul? What a shocking revelation it must have been for these Pharisees that Jesus could read their minds. And his point here in this first argument is Satan would never authorize an attack against his own army. That does not make sense. Why would he send me out to attack his own army? Stopping the work that is going on with the demons. Second response that Jesus gives to this blasphemous claim about his, the, the source of His authority is, verses 19 and 20, Jesus is not alone in His ministry of exorcism. Okay, don't think something mystical here. Just think casting out demons. 
Jesus is not alone in His ministry of casting out demons. Notice verse 19. Difficult verses to think about, but, but I think this is His point. If I, by Beelzebul, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus saying, I am not alone in my ministry of casting out demons. Apparently there were some other Jews. That's why He says at the end of verse 19, Who will your sons? By whom do your sons cast these demons out? Your sons, the Jews, the people that you relate with, apparently they're casting out demons as well. And Jesus is saying, why don't you ask them about the source of their power? You're quick to judge me, but what about them? Go ask them. And if you're going to condemn me for casting out demons, you better be sure that those men will be your judges since they have more power than you. Right? They're, they're actually able to cast out demons, something you can't do, Pharisees. But, on the other hand, verse 20, if my statement is true, that I don't cast out demons by the power of Satan, but rather I do it by the finger of God, then you better watch out for the judgment that's coming from the kingdom that's upon you. Because I am the king of the kingdom. I think that's the point of verses 19 and 20. He's, he's reasoning with them. Listen, if you're going to, to, to criticize and ridicule me for how I'm casting out demons, you better talk to these other people who are casting out demons. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples when He said, hey, what about all these other people who are casting out demons? You know, we told them to stop. Remember how Jesus responded? What did He say? Whoever's not against us, it's for us. Hey, they're on our side. So apparently, these Jews were not being—they were not being ridiculed at all by the Pharisees, these ones that were casting out demons. And Jesus is saying, "Listen, they're going to be your judges someday. They're going to stand in the courtroom and be witnesses on the stand that will lead to your condemnation." Third reason, verses 21 and 22: a divided house falls. So a divided kingdom falls. He's not the only one casting out demons. And then thirdly, a divided house falls. We see this first of all in verse um, verse 17, second part of the verse, and a house divided against itself falls. We see it again in verse 21. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. A strong man is able to secure his own possessions, right? He's strong. You're not going to to go up against him. However, those possessions are not very secure if there's a stronger man than he. So who do you think Jesus is calling the strong man? Who's the strong man here? It's Satan. So Satan has his things secure. The, the, The work and the rule of demons, how they work throughout the world, it's all secure until what? A stronger man comes along and takes all of his possessions. Who's the stronger man? It's Jesus. He can come and do whatever he pleases because he is stronger. And so here's his third reason for why he is not working on behalf of Satan. He's saying, I'm not working against Satan. 
I, I'm not working for Satan on behalf of Satan, but I'm working against Satan. And the fact that I am able to have these victories against his army shows that I display ultimate power over him, that I am the stronger man. And it guarantees that I will have final victory over this strong man. And that's what Genesis 3 talks about, right? That he will, the seed of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent. It's another way to talk about Satan. Jesus performs miracle in order to reveal the hearts of his opponents. And then in verses 23 through 26, Jesus warns his followers about making an improper response. Jesus warns his followers about making an improper response. Again, what we ought to see in this passage is that there is no neutrality with Jesus. That is, with our response to Jesus. And that means that we must be completely committed to Him. Verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In the previous section, the blasphemy of Jesus, Jesus forces them to make a choice. There's no neutral ground. And that's what these three verses are about. There's no neutral ground with our response to Christ. The side you choose is determined by how you respond to Jesus. If you're with Him, then you will follow Him. You will obey Him. You will submit to Him. But if not, you will be scattered. In verses 24-26, the empty man is the compromised man. The empty man is the compromised man. This is where we have this passage that when you have this spirit that leaves a man... He goes out and then he comes back and he sees that it's nice and clean in there. And so he calls seven of his other demonic friends and and they come and fill up this cleaned out place, this empty place. And what Jesus is saying is that if you are neutral, you will lose. Cleaning out the evil is not enough. If a person somehow had a demon removed from them, they don't automatically become saved. Cleaning out the evil is not enough. Just as for us, hearing the message is not enough. The evil must be replaced by faith. Just as the rejection of Jesus needs to be replaced by acceptance. The empty man is the compromised man or the empty man is the evil man. He, is, he will fall. Verses 27 and 28, a proper response requires complete devotion. A proper response requires complete devotion. Jesus uses His own family relationships as a picture of a spiritual reality. Verse 27, While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to Him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But He said, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and observe it. A proper response requires complete devotions. Here's what Jesus is saying. Not that his mom is unimportant, I don't like her, I'm sick of her, I'm done with her. That wasn't the idea. He's saying human relationships are important. In fact, close family relationships are even more important, but there's nothing more important, even the closest of family relationships, than being completely devoted to Christ. You think my mom is blessed? She is. But you want to know who's more blessed than she? It's you. When you obey God's Word. When you follow God's Word. 
That's the one who's truly blessed. That's what Christ is looking for. Complete devotion. Do you want to have more status? A more welcoming acceptance by Jesus? And follow His Word. There's no neutrality with Jesus, so we must be completely committed to Him. And then in verse 29 through 36, the wait and see approach to Jesus is a pathway to severe judgment. The wait and see approach is a pathway to severe judgment. Again, back up to verse 16. Others to test Him were demanding of Him from a sign. So first He he addresses those who blasphemed. You're casting out demons. That's verses 17 to 28. And then He addresses those who are testing Him. Like, I'm not really sure. just need to see a little bit more evidence. If I can just have a few more pieces of evidence, then I can make a proper response. And Jesus is saying, no, listen, this wait and see approach to how you respond to me is a pathway that leads to severe judgment. So don't wait and see. Come and repent. The wait and see reproach is seen in verses 29 through 32. As the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet, no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Again, Jesus is saying there's two responses. You can either accept me or reject me. Well, I hope you recognize there are two kinds of rejection. Okay, So if we have acceptance and rejection, I'm saying those are the only two choices we have. I, I hope you recognize that there's a subset of our rejection of Christ that it could either be active rejection or passive rejection. What would you say is attributing the works of Jesus to the devil? Active or passive rejection? Active, right? This is this is of the devil. This is not. Okay, but, but here's the second one, and it is passive rejection. It is, uh, let me see a few more things. Let me see a sign. Let me see a miracle. Show me that you're going to be worth it. That's the wait and see approach. It's passive rejection, which, by the way, is still rejection. And Jesus wants them to know how serious it is to just kind of wait and see. You know, if you just give me a few more years, Jesus... If, 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 you know, the bumper sticker I showed in Sunday school a few weeks ago, try out Jesus. If you don't like you, don't like it, then the devil will always take you back, that sort of thing. And it's a joke. Because Jesus is saying, that will lead you to hell. Don't try out Jesus. Come and repent. Passive rejection leads to severe judgment. And, and we have two examples. Uh, one is is two examples that actually will come in the, the time of judgment and be witnesses against the Pharisees and those who are passively rejecting Jesus, their condemnation. First, the sign of Jonah. It seems to be that 
Jonah preached repentance to a group of people who were under God's wrath. And Jesus is essentially saying here in verses 29 and 30, I am here in your presence. What greater sign? You look for a sign. We want a sign like, you know, the people of Nineveh had a sign. But, but Jesus is saying, I'm in your midst. If you reject me, you have rejected the Father. You know who's going to be there at judgment? It's going to be Nineveh. And they will be standing there as an example of what it looks like to repent at the first sign of hope, at the first sign of reconciliation. They're not waiting for more signs. You know, just give us a little bit more time, Moses. No. Repent and believe. Judgment's coming. You have 30 days. And they repented and believed. And they will be standing on the day of judgment as an example to people like the Pharisees who just kind of said, we'll wait and see. Verse 31, we see that Jesus is wiser than the Queen of Sheba. Okay, They're looking for a sign. Give me a sign. Queen of Sheba came. She came from a long way, from the ends of the earth, it says, to see Solomon or actually to hear of Solomon's wisdom. And she responded rightly to that wisdom. And Jesus is saying, you're looking for more signs, more miracles, and in this case, more wisdom. I am wisdom. I am here in front of you, teaching you wisdom, and you are still rejecting me. And that's why, verse 31, the Queen of the South will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them. They will, she will stand there in the courtroom on the witness stand and say... God, I have seen Your wisdom through the man Solomon. And they will say, we didn't see Your wisdom, God, even though it came in Your very person, the person of Christ. Even though wicked, she repented, and yet this people have Jesus in their midst and they will not repent. Verses 33 through 36, we see the need for receiving the message. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar nor under a basket, but on the lampstand, so that those who enter may see the light. The eye is the lamp of your body. Whom your, uh, when your eye is clear, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Watch out that that light is not darkness in you. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it will be wholly illumined. And when the lamp illumines you with its as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. This is where we get the children's song, you know, this little light of mine. You know, hide it in a bushel, no. Hey, we're not gonna do that. And um that's that's the point. Okay, the the light isn't meant to be hidden. It's not meant to be hidden. Once it's lit, it's supposed to, to shine. It's supposed to shine through the darkness. The generation to which Jesus is speaking is an evil generation characterized by darkness because they have not repented. And in verses 33 and 36, we see the right reason why. It's because they have not embraced the teaching of Christ. A lamp in the ancient Near East was used to give off light. And in order for it to give off light, the best place for it was not under a bushel, not under the bed, but it was on a lampstand, a high place, it would be able to emanate light throughout the whole house. 
And Jesus is saying, I am that light. I have been faithful to explain what God is doing, and yet, for them, the light of His teaching is no good. It's no good because it's not been received. And the problem with them is they have this light, and it's as if they're hiding it under a bushel. They're not allowing it to to come into their person and, and emanate. To illuminate. Because if the teaching of Christ, the light, fills your whole person, it will change you. That's the point of the light versus darkness in this context. It is that it will change you. So we must receive the message. In verses 37 to 54, we see that Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes. Up until this point, the opposition of the Pharisees is fairly subversive. Subversive. That's the opposite of overt. Okay? Overt is just out there, blatant. Subversive is, you know, kind of in the background. Just the the peanut gallery idea. It's kind of just going to mock him and, and do things from a different distance. Now it's more overt. They tend to, up until this point, they tend to watch him, make comments to themselves, ask questions, leading questions. But their opposition to His person now is increasing. Their opposition to His teaching is increasing. And here, they have a problem with Him not washing His hands before He eats. In verse 37, Now when He had spoken, a Pharisee asked Him to have lunch with Him. And He went in and reclined at the table. And when the Pharisee, the host, saw it, he was surprised that He had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. Now, to be clear, parents, this is not a proof text a proof text to use with your kids before dinner. Okay? This is ceremonial washing. This is not okay, we have to wash our hands if we're gonna be godly. That's not the idea. Um it was something that, that the Pharisees, the Jews over time had actually created a rule for, a tradition, and then made it and then forced it on a person's conscience that if you didn't ritually clean before a meal, then you were against God. And it wasn't something that was required in the Old Testament. It was something that they had added on. And then they said, if you're going to be righteous, then this is what you have to do. And so Jesus responds with three condemnations for the Pharisees. And we find them in verses, 37, or verses 39 to 44. Three condemnations. The first is that they are living a lie. Let's read verse 39 first. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. And then verse 42, But woe to you Pharisees. This is why I say it's a condemnation. That's what the woe means. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Jesus says, listen, you're living a lie. You have this cup that's on the outside. It's very clean. But the insides are dirty. No one wants to drink out of that cup. Second condemnation of the Pharisees 
as introduced by the word woe, is found in verse 43. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. The second condemnation is, you live for the praise of people. You live to be viewed by people. That's your primary concern. You want to make sure that you have the best seats. Jesus in other places saying, you know, you want to make sure that everybody sees you give. Woe to you. Condemned are you for living that way. Verse 44. The third condemnation is that, that they are polished only on the outside. Woe to you. For you are like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. These tombs are all beautifully cleaned on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. Pharisees, that's how you are living. you got it all polished up on the outside, but inside you're a wreck. So he condemns the Pharisees. And the scribes are listening in and thinking, if he's condemning them, then does that mean he's including us as well? Are you sure you want to go that far, Jesus? If you're condemning the Pharisees, then that kind of sounds like you're including us. And Jesus responds essentially by saying in verses 50, 45 to 54, yes, you scribes also need to repent as well. And he gives them three specific condemnations. Notice verse 45. One of the lawyers, or the experts of the law, might be a better way to think about it, said to him in reply, Teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. So all these condemnations that you're bringing against the Pharisees, Sounds kind of like you're going after us too, but you don't want to do that, do you? And Jesus says in verse 46, here's the first condemnation for the scribes. Woe to you, experts of the law as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. First condemnation for the scribes is that they burden people without offering help. Daryl Bach puts it this way, you are quick to point the finger, but slow to lend a helping hand. Quick to point the finger, but slow to lend a helping hand. Do you know anyone like that? They're part of the peanut gallery, you know? They always have a criticism for something. They're never part of the solution. They're never there to help when it's time to take care of the problem, when things get dirty and difficult. They've got lots of opinions, lots of ideas of how things need to be taken care of. You know anyone like that? Are you ever like that? With your spouse? Quick to criticize, quick to, quick to point the finger, slow to lend a helping hand. Maybe with your coworker? Man, he's got, he does not know how to do his job. But you're not there to help him. When it's time to help. It's easy to point out problems in our spouse, in our co-worker, in the government. It's easy to point out problems, the things that are wrong in this church. What is wrong with our family? But it's another thing to get in there and get our hands dirty and be part of the solution. Jesus is saying, you scribes, condemned are you. Because you're quick to point your finger at other people without being willing to lend a helping hand. 
He's not saying don't ever criticize, don't ever, you know, just have this Pollyannic approach to life, like everything's going to be great. It's so wonderful. We love life. Oh, be realistic. It's not wrong to criticize. Jesus often criticized. But he's also there to lend a hand. He's not just standing back saying, what's wrong with these people? Easy for us to do. Hard for us to obey Christ. Second condemnation is found in verses 47 to 51. You honor the prophets that you rejected. You honor the prophets that you rejected. This is just striking when you think about it. Verse 47, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets. Okay, so they set up these great monuments to the prophets of old. And then notice the next part of the verse. But it was your fathers who killed them. Verse 48, So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you build their tombs. And for this reason also the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some they will persecute so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the house of God. Yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this generation. You honor the very prophets that your fathers and you, by your actions, also reject. It's really easy to listen to the saints of old, all the prophets, the great prophets. really easy to listen to them now that they're dead and silent. We're happy to honor them. Oh, great prophets of God. When they're alive and they speak on behalf of God and it hits home, we're quick to reject them. And Jesus says, condemned are you because you make up these great monuments for these prophets and yet you were the ones who persecuted and killed them. You people, and by your actions and how you have not continued to listen to them, show that you are not responsive to their word, which is my word. Third condemnation, verses 52 to 54. You hinder people from receiving the teaching of God. You hinder people from receiving the teaching of God. Verse 52, Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. It's a really stark picture here. You have the key to knowledge that leads to eternal life. And do you know what you did? You didn't use that key to open up the door and enter eternal life. Not only did you not enter yourself, but you hindered others from doing the same. You could have opened that door wide up and invited them in, but instead you've kept people from entering. You have the true knowledge of God, but you haven't accepted it. You haven't entered yourself. You haven't responded. And woe to you because you have put up barriers from other people being able to enter as well. Christians, we must wholeheartedly follow Christ. This is not a game. We don't just go through life and, man, this is kind of a neat little niche that I found, church. I like the people, kind of like being together, like the songs. feels good sometimes when I hear the preaching. Following Christ is serious and it demands our wholehearted approach to Him, our, our wholehearted repentance and belief. 
God is not looking for half-hearted followers or undecided voters. He expects and demands that you make a choice. And that choice is for you to accept His Son. To accept the Son is to accept the Father. So commit yourself to Him fully and hold nothing back. And then, I would encourage you to help others to do the same. So first, watch out for your own soul before you can help watch out for other people's soul. If you're drowning, you're not going to be able to help anyone else who's drowning, right? Okay, so make sure that you're secure, that you're secure in Christ, that you're confident in Christ, that you're leaning on Christ, and then you can help other people who are drowning. Right? Encourage others to do the same as you, which is to wholeheartedly follow Christ. When you talk to others about following Christ, help them to see the urgency that you know. Because you recognize the great condemnation that could have come upon you if it were not for the saving grace and the, the bountiful mercy that God displayed on you. Help them to see that the message of Jesus is not just another message of a thousand. And you need to kind of just make your choice. Kind of like you're standing in the grocery aisle and you have, you know, you're just supposed to go in and grab some t- tortilla shells or something. And it's like, I, I got. 50 choices here. I just need to make a choice. No. When it comes to Jesus, it is you either choose Him or you don't. You, you can choose lots of other things, but when you do, you've chosen to reject Jesus. To seek middle ground between God and Satan is deadly and will result in severe judgment. So call others to salvation the way that Scripture does, which is repent and believe. Not, hey, do you want to accept Christ? You think that would be a nice thing to add to your life? The Scriptures never talk about salvation in that way. As if it's a question. Should you do it? No, God has a demand on your life. He owns you and deserves for you and, and, and expects you to respond to Him. You have a choice. So you can talk to unbelievers. Repent and believe. To command. On behalf of the authority. Remember Jesus that all authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And I'm saying to you, go. Go and make disciples. That authority that I have, you go in that authority. You, you don't say it on behalf of yourself. You know, I, I, I really found it. I, I figured it out. No. On behalf of the authority of Jesus Christ, I tell you, repent and believe. If you don't, you will receive eternal condemnation. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no second chance when we get to when we get to the next life, right? Like, well, just maybe if you just kind of take the whole of life, and once you're able to look back on it, get to heaven, and then you can make a choice. We've got to make a choice now. It's an urgent call. It's a serious call. We ought to be serious about it when we call people to Christ. If you have trusted in Christ and are trusting in Christ, you have a privileged position, right? That's what You're more blessed than Mary. You have a privileged position, and that means that you ought to give yourself in wholehearted obedience to God by embracing His Son and His message. Let's pray. Lord, help us to embrace the message of Jesus Christ. Thankful that Your Word speaks to us through the power of Your Spirit pray that it would change us. 
or we want to respond with confidence, with repentance, with ongoing belief. Continue to remind us of our sin. Continue to remind us of our reliance upon you. We pray all these things because we believe they're in keeping with the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.